This week, dinner parties launch. Um, Dinner parties are the way that we build community across this city. Our hope and our desire is that someday we will have a dinner party on every block in Washington, D.C. It was so cool. Uh, This morning, um, as I was going into our our, uh, Columbia Heights Parish, uh, someone walked up to me that was a little hesitant about leading a dinner party because they lived in Roslyn. I didn't know anyone lived in Roslyn, but they lived in Roslyn. They live in Roslyn. And they came up and they said, I was hesitant about hosting this because I didn't think anyone else lived in Roslyn and now my dinner party is almost full and it turns out that one of the people that signed up lives in my building like a couple floors up and then another person lives two blocks down and they said I've been praying for community in Roslyn Um, and because I stepped out and was faithful and decided to host um, I was able to make these connections and so that's so cool and so um, we are launching next week or this week dinner parties all across the city if you don't lead one or you're not a part of one I'd really encourage you to, to think and pray about either leading or being a part of one um, you can go to the tablechurch.org forward slash dinner party um, to uh, uh, to find all the dinner parties across the city and then the other thing is um, there's a number of key neighborhoods we don't have a dinner party in and so if God begins to nudge you during the middle of this service or tonight as you're on your way home, I actually had someone this morning that came to our training we did this afternoon that said all during service, they just felt God was nudging them that they needed to lead a dinner party. And so they said, you know what, it's actually not a great time for us, but we're going to do it because we felt we, were, we had to say yes to God. So if that's you and, and you feel that nudge, um, uh, Josh McComas would love to, um, to do a, a, a training for you. He's already done all the official trainings. I'm volunteering him. He's not here, so it's okay. Is he here? Yeah. No, he's not here, so it's okay. Um, you can email him at uh, joshua at thetabledc.org. Now, it turns out I've been telling you you could sign up um, by emailing Josh at the table dc for about six weeks and no one mentioned to me that it's joshua i had no idea he was so formal so it's joshua at the table dc.org who knows how many of you were like felt led by the spirit to lead a dinner party and then you got a bounce back email and you're like well i got the spirit wrong anyway <laughs> it's joshua at the table dc.org and then um wednesday evening this wednesday at this parish um we have all in night everyone is welcome Starts at 6.30 p.m., pizza at 6.30, and then we begin at 7. It's a great time to meet other people and just to, to get a, a sense of the heart and vision of this, this house. Uh, we are going to hear um, this particular all-in from Nicola Davis, who heads up our First Impressions team. I'm really excited for you to hear from Nicola. Um, so all-in, um, register by t- uh, October 1st, so we'll have enough food. Thetablechurch.org forward slash all-in. We will have child care available. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, I thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for the marvelous day we had yesterday where we are just reminded of the beauty of your creation. Um, I pray that you would um, be in the service this evening and help us to to get a, a glimpse of who you are and your heart for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are on week four of an eight-week series called Blank Slate, where the idea is, what if we began from scratch? What if you'd never gone to Sunday school, you'd never heard about Jesus before, your grandmother had never told you about the faith? What if you started from scratch? Because the problem for many of us is that we begin to formulate our faith framework although you wouldn't have known it quite so formally at the time, you begin to formulate your faith framework right around the same time you learned about Santa Claus. And, and, and so you, 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 this framework began to develop, and it went something like this. Um, God is good, 
God answers prayer and God heals, right? That's like very basic, but it's something along those lines. And then what ends up happening is you begin to become more aware of the realities in our world and and you've been taught that God is good, but you're having a hard time reconciling how a good God could allow so much suffering to happen in the world. Or you've been taught that God answers prayers and you prayed and believed with everything in you that God would do something miraculous and nothing seemed to happen. And over time, There begins to be a gap that develops between what you've been taught and what you actually believe. And you respond in a couple different ways. Some of you respond by just gritting your teeth and saying, I am going to believe no matter what the inconsistencies are. Some of you are just incredibly disciplined people. You just are holding on no matter what. And you will until until you're 90, until you're dead. I mean, you're just, that's who you are. But for others of you, if you're honest with yourself, and some of you, nobody else even knows this, but when it's just you and God, your your faith is holding on by a thread at best. And many of you are just going through the motions because the realities of life have so not matched up with what you were taught about faith. And so we in this series are saying, what if we started again? What if we started from scratch? And, and, and I love this series. This is like my favorite thing to talk about because I'm saying, what if, what if we had an opportunity to, to start again and rediscover the faith from, from the ground up? And the beautiful thing is we do have that opportunity. And, and, and I think this is helpful to those of you who are just considering faith for the first time and to those of you who are the ones who are, who are just, you just believe and you always hold on tight I think even you can discover something new about the faith that you have. So we're walking through the series. Last week, um, we talked about a guy by the name of of Abraham. And I'd really uh, encourage you to kind of follow along online if you miss a Sunday. Um, You can listen on iTunes or Google Play or Alexa. Um, Follow along because we're trying, I'm building each week. Last week, we talked about this guy named Abraham, and essentially we said this, that, that Abraham, underneath the desert sky, God told him, look up and count the stars in the sky. And God says, you see those stars, too numerous to count? Someday your descendants will be more numerous than the stars and the sky. But of course, the reality is Abraham had no kids, no, bio, no kids of, uh, from him and his wife, Sarah. He kind of short-circuited and had a, a kid with his, with his servant, which is another story, but, but Abraham has no, had no kids, and, and, and the text tells us that, that Abraham trusted God, and his trust was credited to him as righteousness. But today, I want to talk about something that, that is a hang-up for many of us when it comes to faith, no matter the tradition you grew up in, because one thing that all religions and all traditions have in common is rules. Islam has the five pillars. Judaism has the Ten Commandments, along with quite a few others. Christianity has the Sermon on the Mount. The problem with Christianity is, the problem, well, and just before we get to the problems with Christianity, because that can take a while. If if you you grew up Sikh, Sikhs Sikhs have their own set of rules. Buddhism Buddhism doesn't really like to think about rules, but they're like principles. Everybody, every religion has their, their rules or their guiding principles. The problem with Christianity is, and I'm sure every faith tradition has the same problem, it's just I know more about my own, um, is that 
there's a million set of rules. So I grew up in this tradition called the Church of the Nazarene, and we had this ridiculous set of rules. I mean, it's gotten a little more lax, but back in the day, I mean, you weren't allowed to, to dance or, 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 or drink or go to movies. I mean, it was really hardcore. I mean, one of the things we used to say is that we were against premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. Um, that's how, like, seriously we, we, we took it. And then, and then the Presbyterians had rules, and the Southern Baptists had their set of rules, and the Methodists, well, we didn't think they had enough rules. But anyway, every faith tradition had their own set of rules. And, and if you begin to scrape back or you begin to examine those rules, you begin to realize that often there is no correlation between the text and the things that we've been told are important for how we live our lives. And many of these rules were used to heap shame and guilt on you because you could never live up to the rules and so the question I want to want to ask today is what's with all the rules and and what role do rules play in um, religion because every religion has rules so first I want to create a premise and the premise is this that rules always assume relationship rules always assume some sort of relationship. Now, I, I, I want to talk about rules or the types of rules that we can um, live by or have um, in three different categories that I stole from somebody else, but I thought it was helpful. Um, the first set of rules is the family model. And the family model essentially says there is a set of rules that you follow because you already belong. Some of you, you've had your parents sit you down at some point in your life and say, you behave this way because you are, and then you fill in your family's last name. So the thing I said today, which everyone found actually kind of funny, but tells you more about me than probably I should reveal. But um, when I was young, my dad would sit me down and say, you know, we're lums. And lums are late if they're not 15 minutes early. Which, if you know me, I'm never 15 minutes early because the other thing you need to know about me is I hate rules. And if there's a rule to break, the chances are I will find a way to break it. In fact, in college, now I'm not as bad as a friend of mine in college. In college, we had this lifestyle covenant. It was 20 rules front and back that we had to sign. Um, and and uh, it just always annoyed me. But anyway, um, so we had these, this lifestyle covenant. It was a very conservative Christian college. And one of my friends, um, he, he took this lifestyle covenant and he, he printed it out, and then he posted it on his wall. And then his goal was, by the day that he graduated, to break every single rule on the list. He got 19 of 20. He never actually told me what one rule he didn't break was. But anyway, but there is a model. I'm getting off track. There's a model of rules that essentially says, because you belong, you follow these rules because of who you are. The second model is the club model or the employee model. Right? And in this, you get the rules after the relationship is established. So you join a club, and they're like, welcome. Now that you're part of the club, here are the rules. Little, little caveat. If you break the rules, you get kicked out. Right? And so, like, or, you know, you, HR brings you in for orientation. So glad you're going to work for our company. So here is our policy. If you break any of these rules, HR is going to have a conversation with you, and you will no longer be employed, right? So there, the rules come at, like, you have a relationship, and then there are rules, but the, the relationship is contingent upon keeping said rules. Now, there's another set of rules which I like to affectionately refer to as the condo board model or the condo association model. It could also be the community garden or the neighborhood association, depending on where you grew up. 
they don't really have the power to kick you out if you break rules. I mean, if it's like really egregious, maybe they could, but they don't really have the power to kick you out. They just have the power to make you really uncomfortable. Right? Every time they see you in the hallway, they throw shade at you, and they send very passive-aggressive emails to you about how you are not doing whatever right to kind of keep up with the condo association rules. And it depends on which building you live in, but some are kind of over the top. I've lived in them before, and I don't like following rules. So anyway, it's in the, but, but so there's these three different types of rules. There's the family model, there's the club model, and then there's the condo board. In all of us are in are are on all of those rules are related to relationship, and so what I want to look at this evening is how do those rules and the, that model of, of how does that model of rules relate to religion? Because many of us believe that if we behave and do the right things, then we like get in with God. We're doing okay. But if we do anything to mess up, then we're going to get kicked out. And others of you believe, well, because I'm a human, I'm kind of in. But God is like perpetually unhappy with me and, and throwing shade my way. Right? God is like sending us um, passive-aggressive emails like, oh, you know, I still love you, but my goodness, you really disgust me. Right? There's something along those lines. We laugh, but that's how some of us view our relationship with God. Now the interesting thing is that for some of you when we talk about rules it is a theological category. I mean you are processing like maybe you took an intro to theology class or you read like a theology book once and you're thinking about rules and relationship to, to theology and all the things you've learned. But others of you this is emotional. Right? You are feeling an emotion right now because you are remembering how you never matched up to the rules. You just never felt like you belonged. You never felt like you quite fit the mold. You never were good enough. Others of you, you felt like you were walking around on eggshells, always afraid that God was somehow going to be unhappy with you. He's like this grumpy dude in the sky just waiting for you to transgress one of his almighty rules, and he just might strike you dead. But yet we're told that we are part of God's family and that God's love is unconditional and there's nothing we can do to earn it or to lose it. But no matter that we've been told that since day one, we still feel, many of us, not all of us, we still struggle to accept the idea that God loves us unconditionally. So which one is it? Is it the family model that, that we are in and once you are in, there is a set of rules that comes along with it? Is it the club model that it's like you break it, you're out? Or is it kind of this, this condo board model where you know, maybe, you're, maybe you're in, maybe you're okay with God, but God is not happy with you. So to help us wrestle with this question, I want to go back a bit. and I want us to go back to and look at the oldest set of laws, actually the third oldest set of laws ever given. given. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, best we can tell, are about the third oldest set of laws in human history. Um, the Hammurabi Code is older, and there's one other set of laws that are, that are older as well. But the Ten Commandments is one of the oldest sets of laws in all of human history. Best we can tell, um, God gave these, these laws to Moses somewhere around 1400, 1450 B.C., but I want to give you a little bit of a background before we look at the actual 
laws. Um, actually, before I do that, one other thing. The thing I find interesting about the Ten Commandments is American Christians in particular like to get um, up in arms over the Ten Commandments being removed from public spaces. This is less big now. We have other things that are more pressing. But back in the day, when I was young, um, this was a really big deal. People were trying to take the Ten Commandments like off a courthouse lawn or off a state capitol lawn, and people just lost it. I mean, there was so much chaos over this. And, and what I always found fascinating or kind of hilarious was many of the people who were so opposed to removing the Ten Commandments from whatever public space it might be, if you were to ask them, can you name like four of the Ten Commandments, they'd be like, uh, and maybe not. Honestly, most of you tonight would probably, if I were to give you a pop quiz, can you name the Ten Commandments, even though this is one of the most famous sets of rules in human history, you'd struggle to name all ten. Do, do you all know where they're found in the Bible? We could start something easy. Anyone know where they're found? Exodus? Exodus where? Whoa, we have way more than in the morning. Exodus 20, that's very good. You can use that knowledge next time your crazy uncle's like going off about, you know, the Ten Commandments, God being taken out of America because of the Ten Commandments. You're like, do you know where they're found? Because I do. Don't do that. Anyway. <laughs> See, aren't you glad you came to church tonight? Um, so anyway, there's a guy named Abraham. Talked about him last week. Father Abraham had many sons. Um, he was, uh, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Um, he actually didn't have many, like, direct sons, that's, but that's another point. So I told Jess I wasn't going to say that again tonight, but I just couldn't stop myself. But I do find it fascinating. We sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, but he really only had one biological son, whose name was, let's get back on track, whose name was Isaac. And Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, and his 12 sons became the, the head or the the ruler, the, the, the namesake of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Isaac, who is Abraham's son, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And the 12 tribes of Israel are named after Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob had one special son, a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph had a phenomenal coat because he was his father's favorite. As you can imagine, the way that sibling rivalry works, when one sibling is favored over the others, everyone hates the favored sibling. Mostly, most times it does not end up with a sibling being thrown in a pit and sold off into slavery in Egypt, but that is how this story ends. So, so Joseph's brothers sent, um, throw him in a pit, he's sold off to slavery in Egypt, but he finds favor, um, there's a whole host of circumstances, but he finds favor with the Pharaoh and he essentially becomes the, the prime minister of Egypt. And because of the wisdom and the vision that God had given him, he is able to navigate Egypt through a time of famine um, and helps to prepare the nation and then guide the nation through a crisis, of a, through a food shortage crisis. Well, Joseph's family who live outside of Egypt, they are also struggling with a famine. And so they go into Egypt trying to find food and they arrive at like the grain house or wherever it is that Joseph is in charge. And they see that Joseph, the brother they've sold into slavery, is now one of the most powerful men in the world. And as you can imagine, they're a bit freaked out by this fact. Joseph, though, is incredibly gracious. And he forgives them for what they've done. And he invites them to come live in Egypt. Fast forward a few years. They have a lot of kids and they just keep having kids after kid after kid after kid. 
the dominant power, being Egypt, being Pharaoh, begins to freak out because anytime a group of people who don't fit the dominant norm begin to grow rapidly, the powers that be freak out and then they normally try to find a way to stamp them, to stamp it out or to, to, to put some kind of constraints on them. And so Pharaoh decides to enslave um, Joseph's descendants. Joseph is long dead, but Joseph's descendants become slaves in Egypt. And my guess is, and this isn't specifically in the text, but, but that they begin, when they first get to Egypt, they are telling stories around the campfire late at night about their great-great-grandfather, a guy by the name of Abraham. And Abraham had been promised by God that his descendants would be a great nation and that all the people of the earth would be blessed through their descendants. And they would tell the story Year after year, fathers would tell it to their sons, and those sons would grow up, and they would tell it to their sons, and it would keep getting passed down generation after generation after generation. But by 200 years into slavery, those stories are beginning to lose their their pool. They're still telling the same story, but they've been in slavery for longer than they can remember. And yes, there was this guy named Abraham and we're still going to tell these stories but they're just stories we tell they have no power because we are helpless slaves in the land of Egypt and this goes on for 400 years and then after 400 years the text tells us that a guy that God raises up he hears their cries and he raises up someone by the name of Moses and Moses leads them into freedom There's this whole host of issues back and forth um, between Moses and Pharaoh. When God calls Moses to lead Egypt or lead um, Israel out of Egypt, um, lead Joseph's descendants out of Egypt, Um, he goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, Pharaoh, um, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, you've got to be kidding me. And he's like, no, I'm serious. And there's this back and forth and all these plagues. Finally, on the night before they're going to be released, on the night before their freedom, Um, Moses says, I have a word from the Lord. The Lord said that we are all to kill a lamb. Tomorrow we are going to be free. And we are all to kill a lamb and we are to put the blood of the lamb around the doorpost. And then we are to tell the story of where we came from. And we are to tell the story of our freedom. And you you have to think in this moment, they're thinking, Moses, Pharaoh is just as powerful. His armies are just as powerful. What makes you think tomorrow is going to be any different? He told us we could leave once before, and then he backed out. But that night, they trusted God. And the next day, they left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea and went into the desert, and they were free. And that takes us up to the moment where God gives um, Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So they're in the desert for about three weeks. They travel from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai, and God gives him um, the Ten Commandments. Now, it's interesting that the Ten Commandments, the prelude or the introduction to the Ten Commandments, we get an insight as to how religion and rules all fit together. We read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God. He begins, the first words he speaks, he said, I'm your God. We are in relationship. 
I am your God and you are my people. You are not just some random people I'm giving laws to. We are in relationship with each other. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And I think one of the most powerful parts of the story, one of the most powerful parts of this, this narrative is that, is that God does something for them without requesting and requiring anything of them. When God comes and says, I'm going to free you from Egypt, he does not say, but here's the deal. Before I free you, I need you to follow a list of about 50 rules or 100 rules or 10 rules or whatever. No, he frees them without requesting anything from them. When they had lost hope, when they were just telling the same old stories over and over, but these stories had lost all their power, God shows up and says, I did something for you. When you were slaves in the land of Egypt, I set you free. You were my people. And then, and then essentially what God does is says, you for 400 years have lived under a dominant story that told you who you were and whose you were. Powers of whatever sort, have a way of narrating how we view ourselves. So to this day, even, um, even though I know, I know the dangers of nationalism, I know how problematic it is to get, become overly entwined with a nation state, every time I hear like the, the Star Stangled Banner or hear a national anthem, I just feel like, a, I feel patriotic, patriotic, like I stand up straight and I don't know, I put my hand over my heart. Why? Because from the day I was born, I was told stories about this nation that we grew up in, of our, of our, of, of, of our greatness, how we've helped millions of people around the globe. Turns out some of those stories were just flat-out lies. Other stories were true. There is a greatness to who we are. But you're told stories about who you are from day one. And, and, and so Israel has been told these dominant stories by Egypt about who they are and whose they are for 400 years. And so now they are led out into the desert. And God says, I want to show you how you are to live as my people. I want to tell you a new story. I want to give you a new normal. Because you are different. You have been called back when I called Abraham underneath the desert sky. You were called for a purpose. All the people of the world will be blessed through you. You are not just some other group of people. You have a unique vocation. And because of that, I want to tell you how you are to live together. And then in chapter or verse 3, he begins. You shall have no other gods before me. The first rule, the first commandment is not a thou shalt not. The first commandment is about relationship. It's saying, look, if this is going to work, I have to have the space, I have to have the, the primary space in your life. You can't have any other gods before me. I know back in Egypt there was a temple on every corner and there's a thousand gods. But you can't have any other gods before me. And then he said, and you also can't make any graven images. I know that's how they do things in Egypt. I know they have a, a graven image for every god. That's not how this story's going to work. Now, here's what's really interesting. The first two commands are spoken in the first person. And then the tense changes for the remaining eight commands. And, and one commentator said that it's because the, an encounter with God is so powerful, it is so overwhelming 
that we can't withstand it. And, and this was really fascinating, and I don't know what I think about all this, and he was pulling on, and act, actually on the writings of ancient rabbis. But what he said is that, that God is so powerful, an encounter with God is so overwhelming that we can't withstand it which makes the Jesus story so much more powerful because to, when you love someone, you make yourself vulnerable to someone. You open yourself up to that person. You open yourself up to being rejected. And what do we learn in the New Testament? That Jesus emptied himself of all power and entered into the creation and walked among us. He made himself vulnerable. He, he opened himself up to rejection. To think that the God who created all the earth was willing to make himself vulnerable and empty himself to bring about our redemption and our salvation is almost too overwhelming to even comprehend. But even this, these words that are being spoken are 1,500 years, 1,500 years before Jesus ever shows up in the scene. And then he says, look, you can't have any other gods before me and you can't have any gra graven images. And then it turns into the thou shalt not. And you can actually split the Ten Commandments. I've talked about this before, but you can split the Ten Commandments in half. The first section, the first section deals with our love of God, right? No other graven images. Don't take my, vein, my name in vain. Don't call things, of, don't say things that are of God that aren't of God. Like, don't use my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Set aside sacred space to remember me, to rekindle our relationship. The first half of the Ten Commandments deal with our love of God. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments deal with our love of neighbor. Right? Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't bear false witness. As a people, he's saying, look, as a people, the foundation of who you are is going to be a truthful nation. If I'm going to accomplish what I want to do, in and through you, you've got to be people who are truthful and who aren't killing each other and aren't stealing from each other. You're going to be different. You're going to live differently. I, I, I probably should just leave this alone, but there's actually, when, when you continue on in, in the Pentateuch and in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you, keep, you get tons more rules and laws. And some of them are just ridiculous and very violent and very inconsistent with what we have come to believe is the nature of God as revealed in Jesus. But what's really interesting is that many of the craziest things that seem most inconsistent with the biblical witness, the rest of the biblical witness, are almost seem to be lifted word, from wor word for word from ancient surrounding cultures' rules. All right, so if you look at, there's some other sets of rules. Like I said, there's two other sets of rules that predate that predate the Ten Commandments. And some of the craziest, most messed up things are, are lifted almost word for word from surrounding culture rules. I think what's going on in some of those texts, and you, we can argue about this later, um, but I think what's going on in some of those texts is that they are beginning, there's some syncretism going in. They, they've adopted some of the things that are not of God from surrounding cultures. But what is even more fascinating is some of the beautiful things that talks about how you were to care for your neighbor and how you were to do to do justice and care for the least among you, no other culture has those rules. No other culture has those guidelines. And what is happening in these texts is, is God is, through Moses, is saying, you are going to be a different type of people. You are going to be a people who are marked by your love and your complete and total devotion to God and your love and complete and total devotion to your neighbor. You will be different. 
which is fascinating because then what happens when Jesus comes on the scene 1,500 years later? What does Jesus say? He gets in this argument with a religious leader, and the religious leader says, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Because he's trying to trap him. And Jesus says, you know what the greatest commandment is. Why don't you tell me? And he says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. That is how it's summed up. That's the Ten Commandments summed up. But ultimately, the role of rules, this is so important. The role of rules is about life. It is about life. It is about life abundantly. God says, I have a better way of living. The way, that, the way that you have lived for 400 years, the stories that all the surrounding people are telling you, they are not life-giving. If you follow that way, you will find yourself on a path to destruction and to death. But I have something better for you. But if you are to have this better way of life, there's a way you need to live. There's a way you need to live. And we see this all throughout Scripture. And I think if you begin to dig, if you begin to scrape back all the things we have added on top of the text and begin to just look at the way of life that we find both in, in, um, both in the, the Hebrew Scriptures, but then in the New Testament, particularly uh, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to find a radical and beautiful new way of being in the world. And honestly, it at times is daunting and overwhelming. But, but for Jesus, sin is not about condemnation. It's about restoration and redemption. It is who we are called to be. It is the, it is the vision of what we are living towards. A world, a world where, where, the, where the poor are blessed. Where those who are last are now first. This is what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes. And this is the role of rules. This is who you are to be. And what we see all throughout the scripture is when Israel messes up and they miss the mark, and they do, over and over and over again. In the same way that we miss the mark over and over and over again. God constantly does everything he can do to be in relationship with them, to bring them back, to woo them back. This is the role of the prophets. The prophets are crazy, psychotic people who do not fit in normal society. And the reason that God uses prophets who don't fit in normal society is because it is so easy to become indoctrinated and to become normalized to whatever the dominant narrative might be. And then you've got these weirdos who just don't fit. And they show up on the scene and they say, by the way, do you, do you know that we were created for something better than this? We were created to be a people of, to do justice. We were not supposed to be a nation like all the other nations. We were supposed to be a people who were marked by, by justice that rolls down like a river. We were supposed to be people who do justice and walk humbly with our God. All throughout, the, read the prophets. The prophets over and over again talk about how you're supposed to treat your neighbor, how you're supposed to, to, to care for the least in your society. And they always are the weird outcast or the weird oddballs on the margins because it, they're the only ones who can see how far they've gone. And God uses the prophets to call them back. Say, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on you. And when their love failed... God's love remained steadfast. When Israel's love failed, when they went their own way, when they did their own thing, when they became like all the surrounding neighbors, God's love remained steadfast. See, because when God called Abraham underneath the desert sky, thousands of years before this moment, he called them for a purpose 
so that all the nations of the earth might be blessed through them. This is, I should not go, go far, but this is too beautiful to not mention. In Genesis, in Genesis 1 through 3, what happens? The world begins to fall apart. Chaos reigns. A curse comes on creation. And then from then on, from then forward, it is about blessing. It is about the reversal of the curse. God says, I am not going to give up on creation. I know things seem hopeless, but I am not giving up. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then 1,500 years later, Jesus shows up. And before he, before he does anything else, before he says, before he gives the Sermon on the Mount, before he begins to tell us how it is we are to live in this new world, he begins healing people. And he begins caring for those that everyone else has discarded. And he stops the storm. And he speaks to the wind. And those who were closest to him were often terrified at his power. And all he said was this, look, you just have to trust me. It's the same word that Moses speaks to Israel the night before they are led into freedom. I know this seems crazy, but you've got to trust God. It's the same word that's spoken to Abraham on that, and the, the, under the stars and the desert. Look, look, I know this seems ridiculous, and I know it seems that this dream will never come true, but you've got to trust me. And John, one of the people who knew Jesus better than anyone, I mean, John hung out with Jesus early in the morning when they woke up before anyone else, and they're sitting around the campfire drinking coffee. John in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, writes this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed, to those who trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It is an invitation that is open to all of us. And what began, what began with Abraham underneath a desert sky, underneath the desert stars of calling a people, calling a group of people who, through whom all the world would be redeemed continues today through us. That God is saying, I am looking for people who will be open to what I want to do in the world. And I want them to live differently than the dominant narrative. I want them to look differently and act differently and care for those people that nobody else cares for. You are to be different. I do have a way for you to live, but it is for the redemption of all creation. And God doesn't ask anything of us to begin other than to trust him. It all begins with relationship and that's where we're going to leave it we'll pick up next week but I want you to think about this question this week if you're in a dinner party um, there will be some more detailed questions but at the very least I'd love for you to think about this question growing up how did you view religion was it was it the club model like you felt that if you ever got out of line you were you're bounced or, or was, it the, uh, was it the condo board model, right? Maybe you're in, maybe God is okay with you, but God is perpetually kind of unhappy with you. Or is it the family model, where you believe that you are in, and because you are in, God has a new and better way for you to live.
Let's pray. God, thank you for this. Thank you for the the stories that we find in Scripture. Stories of broken people whose love failed over and over, but even when they failed, your love remained steadfast. God, I pray that we would be a people who would live differently, that would show the world that there is a new and a better way of being in the world. And God, I just pray that you would continually reveal who you are to us, reveal your love to us, especially to those of us who have the hardest time believing and comprehending that you love us and that you have a purpose for us. In Jesus' name, amen.